If you have a Bible, uh, please turn with me to Psalm 19. If you need a Bible, there are some in the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take it with you. If you're a visitor here, um, the kind of preaching that we understand the Bible to tell us to do, what we do here is rather ordinary, but in our day it may seem odd or weird. In Psalm 19, uh, verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned. He's talking about God's word and that as he reads the word of God, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, he says that moreover, by them, your servant is warned. And we understand that one of the main purposes that you should come to a local church and sit under the preaching of a pastor is to be warned, Um, to have a church father, a pastor who loves you, who knows you, and who knows where you are vulnerable, to who knows that you are walking really near a cliff edge and you don't see it. And that he's willing to take the word of God and say, look out, don't step there, watch out for that. And that he does it to you personally. And, and so the kind of preaching that we want is the kind that gets to your conscience. The kind that, you know, troubles you. Um, because you're loved. Now this morning, as I was preparing, reading, uh, when I say I was preparing, I don't mean I was writing the sermon. I got that done last night. I'm just kidding. I got it done Thursday, I think, or Friday. And uh, by preparing, I just mean reading the psalm again, reading some other things. And let me just tell you what was going through my head. What was going through my head last night, Manny and I were talking about, there's a tree we want to get cut down. I was thinking we could have it milled and put it on the ceiling. So I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking we've been saving up for a boat and maybe we'll get a pontoon boat. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about some tools I'd like to get. And so my mind and heart were everywhere and that's not odd. It's normal and yet I'm trying to fight to get to this. I read verse 14, then let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I read in one of the things I was reading this morning this. The effect of this psalm is verse 14. If this psalm leads you to truly play verse 14, then it's done its work. The whole point of the psalm is to get you to see yourself and your desperate need for Christ and that you might want one thing this morning and that's that you, whatever you say, whatever's going on in your heart, through your mind, would be acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. That's the one thing that you'd want. That's what it's for. That's what the psalm is for. That's what I want for you. And so this psalm gets to the kind of bedrock, foundational question of what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I live like this? How do I relate to the world? The first half of the psalm is creation. How am I to relate to creation? How do I relate to everything that he's made? What am I supposed to do with it? How am I supposed to relate to the sun rising? A bird flying. What am I supposed to think and feel and how am I supposed to interact with it? And then it gets to God's word. What am I supposed to do with it? 
What is it? What is it for? Am I pleasing to him? Will I participate in this eternal salvation? So this psalm is very, very important. Are you acceptable to God? Isn't that important? Parents, you look at your kids. Are they acceptable to God? Maybe you brought somebody here this morning and you're wondering, is he or she, my friend that I love, acceptable to God? That's what Psalm 19 is a part. And, and, and then that's why we preach like we preach here. Because we ain't playing. I said that a lot. You have a soul. You will exist forever. You were created by God in heaven to participate in this world that he's made, defined by his word. And this should be a foremost concern for you, for your soul, for your spouse's soul, for your child, for your friend. Psalm 19 is going to show you in one of the most beautiful poem song that's ever been written. It's one of the things I love about God's word. Psalm 19 is one of the most spectacular pieces of literature, if I can just say that crassly, in human history. This poem, this song is wondrous, sublime, beautiful. And so may God use it in your life to this effect. Let me read it, pray, and talk a bit more about the structure of the psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for his son, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great good. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Forever, O Lord, your word is fixed firmly in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand for all things obey you. They are your servants. Teach us to delight in your law or we perish May we never forget your precepts, for they are life. I am yours. We are yours. Save us, because we love your word. The wicked lie and wait to destroy us, but help us to consider your testimonies. There is a limit in this earth to all perfection. 
but your commandment is unending. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 19 has three very easily discernible sex sections. The first six verses, God's glory in creation. Verses 7 to 11, God's revelation in scripture. It's perfect. And then 12 to 14, this humble response to the glory of God in creation and revelation where he sees his sin and prays this prayer for more godliness. So creation verses 1 to 6, revelation verses 7 to 11, and then a right response to it in 12 to 14. So the main thing, the main thrust going towards is verse 14, that you would see because of God's glory how needful you are of Christ because of your sin, and that the one thing that you would want is to live a life pleasing to God. That's it. That's where it's going. That's where it's going. And so may God do that. So that's what I want to do. I want to do two parts to this sermon. I want to deal with verses 1 to 11, the glory of God. And then I want to deal with our response to it. And my hope is that at the end of it, you would be like the tax collector, the vile man in Luke 18, 13, standing far off, not even willing to lift your eyes to heaven, beating your breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's our hope, that we would have that kind of humility from Psalm 19. So Psalm 19 declares that God is speaking. How many of you wish that God would say something to you? That God would reveal something to you? God, why don't you tell me? God, where are you? And here the psalm is saying, the problem isn't with God speaking. The problem is you're not listening. Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God. He's speaking in creation. And the law of the Lord is perfect. So he's speaking in creation. He's speaking in divine revelation in scripture. And so God has placed in this world two witnesses to his glory. He's given you creation and revelation or scripture, and they both come from him. So typically we talk about natural revelation. That is, God has made everything. So if you're here and you don't think God is the creator, it's because you're deaf. It's because you have a hard heart. It's not because you're so sophisticated and so learned. It's because you're so foolish. God is shouting in creation, he's not quiet. It's not a still small voice. It's a declaration. It's pouring out speech that his power, his wisdom, his goodness, his beauty is made in, is seen in all that he's made and how he governs it all. And then in scripture, in what we call divine revelation, God declares through his word, all the books from Genesis to Revelation, the truth of what he has done for you to save you from hell. So natural revelation, you can see some general reality about God. You can hear it. You can see that God is great and powerful and wise and awesome. But what you can't see in natural revelation is that you're a sinner in need of a savior. God has given you his word beginning to end, to tell you those two truths. God created you. You have fallen in sin. 
And God is a redeemer who sent his son to die on your behalf to save you from your sin and from hell and death and the devil. That's what this is for. We see that this revelation, especially in nature, is very loud and clear. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation. It's constant. In verse 2, it pours out speech. It's 24-7. It's always on, day to day, night to night. Every time you see the sun rising and the sun setting, God is declaring his power, his wisdom, his majesty, his provision for you of everything that is needed for life on this earth, and he is shouting it. And he's saying it in a language that is universal. It goes out through all the earth. There is no place where this is not understood. Verse 3, there's no speech, there's no words where this voice is not heard. And so this, this gives you a little insight into how you, not a little insight, a massive insight into how you're supposed to react and participate in this world. Let me deal with lust. Let me apply this to lust. Now by lust, I mean an inordinate desire for something or someone. By lust, we don't mean desiring something. Desiring something is good. God made you with desires. He put you in a world filled with spectacular good things, and you are supposed to desire them, to want them, to obtain them and use them rightly for God's glory and enjoying them rightly. Lust, then, is to inordinately desire something, to desire something beyond the bounds, to desire something so much that it consumes you rather than you enjoying it. Or to desire something that isn't supposed to be yours. Or you're desiring it in a way that you shouldn't be desiring it. So sometimes we talk about lust, like a man lusting after a woman. A man looking upon a woman who is not his wife and desiring to have her. Desiring her sexually, being aroused by her. That's lust. Or... A woman could do that to a man, or a man could do that for a boat, or a woman for a, what do women want? I don't know. What? Diamonds. <laughs> so what is lust? Lust is stopping at the thing and not realizing that thing is a communicating a greater glory behind it. That a woman does not exist to arouse you. You know that? God didn't create her to arouse you. That's not what she's for. That's a misuse, an abuse of a created being. That you're stopping with that being and all you can see is her. And all you can imagine is what you'd like to do with her. But that there is a far greater glory behind her. And she is not made to bear the weight of your lust. She's made to communicate to you a far greater glory. Similarly, husbands with their wives, wives with their husbands. She isn't there to keep you aroused. She's there to declare to you the glory of God that created her. He isn't there to communicate intimacy constantly to you. He can't bear that weight. He's there declaring to you a far greater glory behind him. Do you understand what I'm getting at? That's what this world is for. 
And you can apply that not only to every human being, but to everything in this world. From a pebble, to a sunset, to aurora borealis, to a deer, to a molecule of water, to a bite of steak or corn on the cob. Everything is meant to communicate to you there is a far greater glory behind this thing. It's a world of wonder and pleasure. But we're so stupid that we can never get by the thing. We worship the created rather than the creator. Do you understand? That's what this world is for. Isn't it wonderful? And so everything exists on many levels in our world. Can you enjoy a bite of sweet corn? Amen. Oh my gosh. Dripping in butter, salt, I like pepper on it. It's delightful. And you can just receive that thing as it is. And then you can think, God created a world where he can turn sunshine and dirt into that. My God. (laughs) It's beautiful. And then you can think, God gave wisdom to man to know that a seed, if I put it in the ground and water and fertilize and weed, it'll grow into that. And you can give God thanks for that. You understand? It's so much fun living in this world. It's a, it's a playhouse of never-ending glories and beauties and pleasures. If you'll do the work to get there. But we're so dull and so lazy that we just lust. We're so gross and vile. We're orcs. Right? We need to be redeemed. You need to be redeemed. You need to be revive to see the world with new eyes again for the first time. Like when you had your first child and you went, and then two days later you want to return to sender because you haven't slept in 58 hours. You get dull. You get used to this glory. So that's what God's doing. And then, As if nature isn't enough, he gives you his word. He gives six titles to his word, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. How many of you like those words? Let me say them again. Law, testimony, precepts, commands, fear, and rules. You like those words? (laughs) Are you convinced yet that you are a miserable, wickled, vile sinner? Right? We look at God's word and we hear what he tells us it is and we go, mm. Mm. rules, precepts, commands, fear. No thanks. And then he says, they're, they're to be desired more than gold. More than much fine gold. You ever watch those shows of the gold diggers in Alaska? And, and what they'll give to get a little, a little nugget? God's word is to be desired more than that. Or honey. Hanson honey. You knew, you knew this was coming, right? You read Psalm 19 this week, Chris, and thought, I should probably skip this Sunday because he's going to call me out. Honey is one of the sweetest, most amazing substances on earth. And he's saying, maybe it's not honey for you. I don't know what food this would be for you. 
He's saying, desire it more than that. Whatever you were craving for when you were pregnant, desire it more than that. And what are you supposed to desire? Law, testimony, precepts, commands, fear, rules. More than the thing that gives the most wealth and more than the thing that tastes the best, you're, you're supposed to want it more than that. And so do you. Why do you need it so much? Why do you need it so much? Well, just look at these. So, so it's the law of the Lord that revives the soul. It's the testimony of the Lord that makes wise the simple. It's the precepts of the Lord that rejoices the heart. It's the command of the Lord that enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. It's righteous altogether. The reality behind these descriptions of the word of God is that we are dead in sin. Our souls are black. Our eyes are blind. Our hearts don't rejoice at what they should rejoice in. They're bent. And God's word alone revives. This is the greatest need you have to be born again. You have a soul. It will endure forever. You will dwell forever in heaven or in hell. And the only way to dwell with God in heaven is if your soul is made new. If your dull, blind eyes are plucked out and new eyes are put in. If your hard, black heart is taken out and a new, spiritual, alive heart is put in. And what does that work is the Word of God. So, parents, for your children... If you have love for your children, the one thing that you want for your child is that they would know salvation. That him or her would know the Lord. And not know the Lord in the sense that they pray a prayer. Not, not know the Lord in the sense that they act well enough for others to think you're doing a good job. But know the Lord. Love the Lord. That they would live for the Lord like an ordinary human Christian, but that they would have genuine love for the Lord that's theirs. You're not coercing it. You're not demanding it. That they just love him. That's what you want for your child. And the only power in the universe that can do that is God's power in his word. And so why don't you read the Bible at home? Why don't you read the Bible yourself, dad, mom? Why don't you bring them to church more often in neighborhood small groups and talk about the word? The word is the power that alone can revive your little beautiful child's soul unto eternity. And yours too. So God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself and creation. He has revealed himself in scripture in order that you might know him, enjoy him, fear him, love him, obey him. This, this can never be taken from you. Do you know that? 
This is something, this revelation of God in nature and in scripture is yours. We live in a world that seems to be getting more and more dictatorial. Removing of freedom that we as a people have decided we will gladly trade freedom for provision. We will gladly give over our responsibility and freedom if somebody will take care of me. But the one thing that can never be taken from a Christian is God's revelation to you. It's yours. If we became the Soviet Union around early 1900s when the communists came into power and you were Alexander Solzhenitsyn and you were a soldier in the Red Army, in the communist army and you were a full-on communist and you wrote one letter criticizing a little bit of the government and it got turned over to somebody and you ended up in a gulag for 10 years (laughs) and you realized that communism was foolish and wicked and awful and that the truth is in the Bible and you realize that they can take my freedom, they can take my job, they can take my home, they can take everything but they cannot take divine revelation from me. It's yours. This is ours. And so Christians, this is how you're supposed to live in the world. Loving his self-revelation. Giving yourselves to knowing the Lord and what he's made and what he's revealed in scripture. This is what we're here for. This is the purpose of education. We're starting up schools. Armist Day started two weeks ago. Some of your home schools have started or will be starting other school choices. These are all starting. What's the purpose of it? This is the purpose of it. The purpose of education is to raise children in the knowledge of the Lord in all subject areas that they might know the Lord. How dare we do math without considering how math reveals the glory of God? This is, this is what it's for. This is what's really damnable about our government education system. It's not that they provide a terribly immoral education, although that's a problem. It's, it's not that they provide a poor education, although that's the problem. It's that they teach an education that is devoid completely of any recognition of the glory of God in it. And that that is a religion. That it's a religion of humanism. It's a religion that all there is is us. We're the creators, we're the governors. So when they teach history apart from God's glorious ordering of it all, they're teaching you a way to view the world, and it's this. You are all there is. There is no God. It's awful. So that's what it's for. So the entire point of this world, everything in it is that you might know God. One of the things that really bugged me about Psalm 19 is I just did not understand how the first 11 verses fit verses 12, 13, and 14. How does he go from declaring the glories of God in creation and in scripture to who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, keep me back from presumptuous sins, don't let them have dominion over me. How does he go from that to that? 
And yet, this is really one of the things we see all over Scripture, that those who see the glory of God the closest often end up on their faces, humbled in their own sin. That those who are really enjoying the glory of God often end up realizing, becoming very aware of how awful their sin is. I think this was David's doing. I see God's glory in creation and I see it in scripture. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. This is Paul in Romans enjoying the glory of God in justification. And then at the end of that, at the end of Paul seeing, Christ has taken my sin. Christ has given me his righteousness. At the end of chapter 7, what does he do? Who will save me from this body of death? What? How do you end up there after seeing God's glory and justification? Because when you see the glory of God, the one thing you become very aware of is how disfigured you are in sin. That's what's happening in Psalm 19. He's driven again to see that he is the foremost of sinners. David, after seeing God's glory in creation, after seeing God's glory in the eternal inspired scripture, realized how awful of a man he is, and he needs to be warned. In verse 12, he realizes again that he is so self-deceptive that the one thing that his heart is, is deceptive. That he doesn't even realize how often he's wrong and in sin. Who can discern his errors? I have all these hidden faults. I'm so blind and sin, I don't even see them. He realizes that if God doesn't restrain him from awful, wicked, presumptuous sin, he'll just be given over to them. This word presumptuous sin, in in, in verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. What does that mean? I officiate basketball, and there's kind of two types of fouls. There's common fouls and flagrant fouls. It's not exactly right, but for you non-official types, I'm going to make it simple for you. Uh, A common foul is just the the, the run-of-the-mill foul, you don't really mean to do it, but you created contact with the opposing player that gave you an advantage until so you're whistled for a foul. It's just common. It happens. You get five of them, and then you're disqualified. So there's common. Flagrant is the willful kind. Like, you mean to do some damage. Or you say something that is so over the top that you don't get five, you get one, and you're out. So you get so frustrated... Opposing players going up for a layup, and you just take them out. That's a foul. It's of the flagrant kind. It's of the premeditated kind. It's of the kind that's so awful that you're done. That's what he's, the kind of sin he's talking about here. Where, where you just, your, your nature of sin, you, is so in love with this thing that you've, given yourself to it. You've premeditated. You've willfully entered into it. And so he's talking about both kinds of sins here. The common kind and the flagrant kind. The hidden kind that we do all the time and the ones that we 
you know. And, and what David is saying is, that's me. That's me. I'm this kind of guy. And he's only able to see that in light of God's glory. And this is what Psalm 19 wants to do that. You're that man. You're that woman. This is you. David is given this gift. One of those sweet times where he becomes very aware and honest of how dirty he is. And it is a gift of God. Because you do not believe you're like this. How many of you here would raise your hand and say, I'm a sinner? But you don't believe it. Why? When you were in a fight with your spouse, whose fault did you think it was? If you're the husband, it's the wife's. If you're wife, it's the husband's. Why do you think that? Because you're so proud and self-righteous. The first thought should be is, what was me? What am I doing wrong here? But it's never that. Why? Because you don't believe you're a sinner. You believe your spouse is a sinner. You can apply this to your friendships. You can apply this to your parenting. You can apply this to the grocery store. It's always somebody else. It's never you. Why? Because if only everybody knew how righteous you were, they would treat you better. I don't deserve this. Because you do not believe functionally that you are a sinner. Yes, you can sign up for the doctrine. Yes, you'll confess it in the membership class. Yes, you'll nod your head when the pastor says you're a sinner, but you do not believe it. Otherwise, you'd stop complaining about so much. Because you realize what you deserve under the wrath of God, but have been preserved by the blood of Jesus. And you would be so grateful because you realize what a worm you are that you would never complain about anything. But we don't believe it. So we'll complain about mask mandates and Governor Evers and Biden because you do not believe you're a sinner. Isn't that sweet of me to say that to you? Why is that good to hear? Why is it good to come face to face with the reality that you are an awful, wicked, terrible, deceitful person? Because then you'll need Christ. Because then you'll have peace in your relationships. Because then you'll actually be a humble person that others can enjoy being around and not so self-righteous and proud that they really can't stand but five minutes with you. That's why. It's so good to come face to face again with what you are in Adam. Because then you can see how much you need Christ. Let the thought drive us to the all-atoning blood and prompt the earnest prayer, cleanse me, O Jesus, cleanse me. Let us seek grace to keep us from bold sins of mad presumption against God's rule. Do you believe Jeremiah 19.7? That your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick? You don't. I know you don't. I don't. 
I know the verse and I can repeat it, but I don't believe it. Not about me. I believe it about you. Especially when I get to know you well. I know it's true. But you're all good Christian people who grew up in good Christian homes and do good Christian things. Your heart is not deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Not me. I'm a good girl. I'm a good boy. No, no, no. You're a liar. (laughs) To yourself, always. Isn't that true? Those of you who are visitors, it was nice that you joined us once. (laughs) There's a better church down the road. I guarantee it. Where they'll say much nicer things. So the only sin in our world is to say what I just said. The only sin in our world today is to be impolite, and I am being very impolite. And, and, and the danger for your soul is social media kind of world, where all anyone ever does is lie to you, where all anyone ever does is misrepresent themselves and show pictures of a perfect face and a perfect marriage and a perfect family and a perfect car and a perfect job and a perfect everything, and they're just liars. And all they ever do is flatter you and tell you how good you are and tell you that you don't deserve it and blah, 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 blah. And social media and all of it is all we get today and we will not have a heart or faith to receive Psalm 19. That's the danger. Every vacation is perfect and then you go on vacation and it ain't perfect. Because that's what you see on Facebook, right? Everybody's vacation was perfect. (laughs) So what do we do? If my sin appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so what do you do? You pray verse 14. God, please, have mercy on me, a sinner. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And only if you let the first 13 verses do the work will you ever sincerely and truly and honestly pray verse 14. Because the reality is, too many of you are too good for verse 14 to really pray it. You're just too good. You're just too good. And I love verse 14. It's so simple. It, it's so simple. There, there's, there's not a bunch of nuance. There's not a bunch of explanation. It's just so plain. And God, I need grace. I need grace. That's it. Let's pray. Father, help me. Help us. Would you, oh God, help us to see your glory in creation and to enjoy it, to give ourselves to your word, your commands, your rules that enlighten and open up everything to us that give us eternal life. And then the humility, God, that you would declare us innocent from hidden faults, that you'd keep us back from presumptuous and they would not have dominion over us and that we would truly 
sincerely be able to pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And so, God, as we enter into the Lord's Supper, into this communion with you, that we would do so as beggars, knowing that you are a good Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the charge is this. What I ask you to do in the Lord, pray Psalm 1914. May the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Pray it regularly for yourselves this coming week. Mean it because you need it. In every situation, God, let this be pleasing to you this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, purchase of the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.